theyeshiva.net. I have the honor of dedicating today's class in the loving memory of Esther Bas Yitzchak. Esther Horgan was murdered last Sunday, the fifth day of Tevis 5781, December 20th, 2020, in the Ryan Forest, right near her home in the Samarian Shamron settlement known as Tel Menasha. I spoke to her husband, uh, Binyamin, in the middle of the Shiva, and he shared with me that that Sunday, his wife went for a run in the forest, beautiful forest near their home. He said for 30 years there was never an incident there, but there was an Arab terrorist waiting in the forest, it seems like, waiting for the next Jew to murder. And Esther was running and she was brutally murdered on Sunday. This was the middle of daylight and then he he didn't hear from her and he called the police and they began a search and they found her lifeless and holy body in the forest. Uh, Esther was an extraordinary person. She was filled with love and life and light and joy. She radiated a passion for life, a passion for love, a passion for giving. All around her, in her family, in her community, she was an exceptional individual. Her husband described to me what a beautiful last Shabbos the family had together with some of their children. May they all be well. And then she was brutally murdered on Sunday. So I, uh, we dedicate this class in her sacred and holy honor and loving memory. And uh, her husband texted me before that they're going to dedicate soon uh, a big set, a park in the forest in her name and her memory, now that the Shiva has come to an end. I'm also very privileged and fortunate that Esther um, enjoyed our classes. She and her husband for many years would listen, They're part of the family and the student body of the yeshiva.net, and they would listen to these shiurim regularly, and she enjoyed them tremendously. So I feel very privileged to have had such a uh, such a participant, such a student, such an exceptional person and source of light to so many. And our heart really goes out to her husband, to her beautiful children, to both of her parents, to her siblings, to the entire extended family, immediate family, extended family, to all the friends and relatives, to the entire community of Talmanasha. Really an unspeakable, sickening, horrific tragedy, unfathomable. What a person is capable of doing to an un- another innocent person, her crime being a Jew living in our holy land. So this class is dedicated in her loving memory and may Hashem comfort 
you, Rabbi Yamin, I know you're tuned in, and your entire family give you the strength and the inspiration you need during this very, very difficult and tragic hour. You're in our thoughts, you're in our prayers, your grief is our grief, the grief of the entire land of Israel, and the grief of the entire Jewish people, and the grief of all innocent human beings, the world over, for such a heinous, evil, senseless act of terror is a stab in the chest of the Jewish people, of humanity, and of goodness, and of holiness. We're here with you, uh, we support you, we pray for you, and we give each other strength and say, as we're going to say this week, Chazak, Chazak, Veniz Chazek. If you open up your source sheets, let's see a um, let's see the powerful moment in Parshas Vayechi after Yaakov Avinu passes away. Okay, so take a look. Vayechi Perik Nun Pasuk Tasvav. This is Genesis, the end of Genesis, chapter fifty, verse fifteen. Let's remember the story. You have it in the Hebrew. You have it in the English. The brothers of Yosef saw that their father passed away, and they said, what if Yosef is now going to display his grudge against us, all the hatred and negativity he has stored up against us, is now going to come out, and he's going to pay us back for all the wrong that we did to him. They sent a message to their brother Yosef, and they say that your father left instructions before he died. Please forgive your brothers, please forgive them, for the sin that they committed against you, treating you so badly. It's a request of your father. Yosef listens to these words, and the Torah says he cries. And then his brothers follow up, and they approach him, and they offer themselves as slaves. What does Yosef respond? This is his incredible response. I'm going to read it in the Hebrew and translate. Yosef, al ki elohim ani. Yosef says to them, don't be afraid. Am I under God? Am I in the place of God? You might have intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of so many lives in an entire nation. And he says, don't be afraid, I'll provide for you and your children. He reassured them, and he comforted them, and he spoke to their heart, and he calmed them down. That's the story. I want to focus on a few words. Yosef says to them, don't be afraid, ki hasachas eleikim ani. Literally it means, am I under God? What is that supposed to mean? What does Yosef mean? Don't be afraid, because am I under God? Or as it's usually tra- translated, am I in the place of God? What, how is that connected to anything? How does that explain the reason that he's not going to harm them. He says, I am not in the place of God. I am not God. Okay, therefore, they did do him wrong. They did harm him. And they were afraid that it's going to be payback time. So therefore, they said, your father asked us to for- asked you to forgive us. And they offered themselves as slaves in compensation for what they have done to him. They would become his slaves and his servants for life. Granted. So Yosef says, don't, Yosef first is crying, he's very emotional. Then Yosef says, don't be afraid. I am not in the place of God. You thought 
to do me harm, but God intended it for good. In other words, everything you did to harm me ultimately ended up resulting in wonderful wonderful and good results. They throw him in a pit, they sell him into slavery. Ultimately, he becomes the viceroy of Egypt and he saves everybody from famine, including his father and his brothers and their families. But what does he mean with these words, am I instead of God? It's difficult to understand. So therefore, Rashi gives us an interpretation in order to make sense of it. What does Rashi say? Rashi says that Yosef was telling his brothers, do you think I can replace God and harm you if I wish to? Look at what happened to you. You planned to harm me. It didn't work. Because God didn't want you to harm me. So why are you afraid of me? You're afraid that I'm going to harm you. Am I God? I can't harm you. I'm incapable. I don't have the potency. I simply don't have the power to be able to afflict harm on you. It's up to God. If he wants, he will. If not, not. And he's proving it from himself. He says, look at my story. You guys tried to kill me. You guys tried to sell me as a slave. You guys tried to get rid of me. And look what happened. You never got rid of me. Not only did you not harm me, you ultimately did me the greatest favor and you did everybody else the greatest favor. Which means you could plan from today till tomorrow, but ultimately the results and the consequences are not up to you. So therefore, I don't know why you're afraid of me. So basically, he's telling his brothers, don't fear. Maybe I would like to take revenge of you. Maybe I would like to harm you. But you know what? I'm not the boss. God is the boss. You tried to take revenge of me. It didn't work. So my taking revenge of you may not work either. Yet, it seems that Yosef is trying to reassure them. He cried. He spoke to their heart. He offered them solace. He offered them comfort. It's a little bit of a strange way, it would seem, to reassure them. It's like basically saying, guys, you know, I may kill you. I may try to kill you, but hey, if God wants, he'll protect you. You don't have to fear my revenge. It's a little bit of a strange way of comforting them. According to Rashi, it may seem that Yosef was really chastising them. Yosef was giving them some rebuke for their fear and dread. He was basically telling them, your attitude is misplaced. What happened to your faith in the creator of the world? In other words, you're not trusting fully that everything that happens is from God. This may be the explanation of that Yosef is not trying to scare them, like, I'll try to kill you, but let's see what God has in mind. But rather, he's like rebuking them, why are you so fearful? Other commentators, the Sepharno, the Rachayim, they give alternative explanations. But today, I want to discuss one insight that comes from the great Hasidic master, Rabbi Levi Yitzchak of Barditchev. And we're going to learn it inside from his work, Kedushas Levi. It's in the source sheets. It's the next piece in the source sheets. You see, it says, Kedushas Levi, Parshas Vayechi. A few words about the author of this book, this great individual known in the Jewish world as Rabbi Levi Yitzchak of the city of Barditchev. Rabbi Yitzchak of Barditchev was born in the year Hey Allah from Tovkuf, 1740, in the Ukraine. He became one of the greatest students of the Magad of Mizrich, Rabbi Ber, 
the Rebbe Reber, Rabbeinu Doiv Ber of Mezrich in the Ukraine, who was the great student and successor of the founder of the Hasidic movement, Rabbi Yisrael Balshemtiv. The Balshemtiv was born 1698 and he passed away 1760. And Rebbe Levitzikov Baditchev was born 20 years before the Balshemtiv's passing, which would be 1740. Rebbe Levitzikov Baditchev, even though he's not so known as this, was a great gun. As, his, as a child, he was known as an Eli, as a genius. He was a Talmudic prodigy and a genius, an exceptional scholar in Torah, in Shas, and Poiskim, and Halacha. He was a Rav in a place called Rochville. He was a Rav in a place called Jelechav. He was a Rav in a place called Pinsk. These were all uh, quite um, power, quite uh, um, respected communities in the Jewish world. And then, at the end of his life, he became the famous Rabbi of Barditchev. Barditchev is a city in the Ukraine, and he's known as Rebbe Yitzchak of Barditchev, that became his new, uh, his, new, his new place, his new location. He was known in the Jewish world as an exceptional mind and an exceptional heart. He was known as the Oy of Yisrael, the ultimate lover of the Jewish people. His passion, his affection for the Jewish people was legendary and unprecedented. They called him the Sanegeri and Yisrael, the advocate, the lawyer of the Jewish people because of the many teachings and insights and emotions that he displayed towards people and towards God, showing his love for humanity, his love for the world, his love for the Jewish people, his love for other people in general. Rebbe Yitzchak passed away after Sukkot Chavhei Tishrei Tovkuf Ayin. That would be, uh, Tovkuf Ayin would be 1809. In October 1809, right after Sukkot, the 25th of Tishrei, it was approximately 69, 1740, so he was 69, 69 years old, and that's where he's buried in the city of Barditchev. I had the privilege of being at his resting place in Barditchev in Ukraine, where many Jews still come and visit. He has a book, a safe, it's called Kedusha Slevi. It's a commentary on Chumash, and it's a commentary on the holidays, and then there's some other scattered commentary on uh, different parts of Gemara, different parts of Halacha, some responsa, but today we're going to focus on a piece of Kedusha Slevi in Parashas Vayichi. Let's take a look. Vayoymer Aleim Yosef Altiro Kiasachas Elikim Oni. Yosef said to his brothers, "Don't be afraid. Am I under God? Am I in the place of God?" Vunkulus Tirgim, Unkulus, the great Aramaic translator of the Chumash, translates these words non-literal. He says, Don't be afraid because I am fearful of God. But when you read the literal words of the Pasuk, the Targum's translation is really not there. It doesn't seem like an accurate translation at all. Yosef did not say, don't be afraid because I am a God-fearing person. That would make sense. Don't be afraid because I don't take revenge of people. I believe in God. I let God punish. That makes sense. I'm afraid of God. I don't do things on my own just because I'm in a bad mood. I'm in an angry mood. But that's not what he says. He says, don't be afraid because am I under God? Am I a replacement of God? 
Basically, what he's saying is, am I in the place of God? Rashi, therefore, gave a very different interpretation. I'm not in the place of God, and therefore, I don't have the power to harm you. But the Targum Unkulus says that what Yosef was saying is, don't be afraid, because I am a God-fearing human being. Wonderful. But it doesn't say that. It says, alekim ani, am I in the place of God? He's not saying I'm a God-fearing person. He's asking a question. Do you think I'm God? Where did the Targum see this explanation in the words? It seems very far-fetched and remote. Venira. The way I understand it, says is as follows. Ki haklal, this is the principle in life. A human being, in all of his or her characteristics and attributes, ought to experience dveikus. Dveikus means alignment, attachment, connection to the Creator. A person ought to understand that what does it mean to be an Adam? What does it mean to be a person? That I am a mirror, a reflection of my Creator. I become like a continuum of the divine. In fact, the word Adam, the Shalah says, the etymology is Adama, because man was taken from earth. Adama is earth. But the Shalah says there's a deeper meaning in Adam. Adam actually comes from the word Doime, Adame Le'elyon. There's an expression of Uchadnetzer says, I'm going to reflect the supernal one, God. So he meant it in an arrogant way of hubris. I'm going to be like God. I'm going to elevate myself to the highest platforms. I'll become similar to God. In a deeper sense, Adam is Adam. What does it mean to be an Adam? To be an Adam means that you're a reflector. The word Adam from the word Doime, Dimyan, Dmus, you're an image, you're a replica. Professor Abraham Joshua Heschel, who came from great Hasidic lineage and masters, once said, when did God violate the commandment, the second commandment of the Ten Commandments, that you shouldn't have, you shouldn't make any images reflecting God? Don't make a carved image or picture reflecting God. He said, when did God violate that commandment? He said, when he created the human being. When he created the human being, he, so to speak, violated that commandment because he did create something in the image of God. And of, of course, his point was this point, that the true Adam, what does it mean to be truly a person? What does it mean living up to an Adam? Adam means Adam alien. I become a reflector of the divine. In other words, my entire life is aligned with the divine reality, with the divine energy. Nasa Adam betzalmenu kid musenu, the human being, is a true image of God. So my behavior, my characteristics become divine-like. And he says, b'midis ha So when it comes, for example, to the attribute of yira, the attribute of awe, of fear, leira Hashem ha I can be afraid of people. I can be afraid of my reputation. I can be afraid that I'm not getting the attention or the validation I need. But then I'm living in a space of a void, in a space of emptiness. I can be afraid of the social, uh, of the social uh, climate. I can be afraid of somebody's opinion about me. Whatever, another, whatever a person is afraid of. I can be afraid of the future of my country. I can be afraid of this individual, of this company, of this reality, etc. But Rebbe Yitzchak says, on Adam... 
is somebody whose yira, their quality of fear, their quality of awe, their quality of reverence, which is part of the human condition, it's part of the building blocks of the human brain. We have that capacity. should be an awe of the Almighty, which is called yiras Hashem. Midas av is the attribute of love. I can be in love with my destructive habits or cravings or inclinations. I can be in love with my addictions. I can be in love with my distractions. And again, those are loves that don't fill up my deepest core because I am not aligned with my deepest core. What is the true love? To be in love with God. And as we're learning now this week in the Maimer and Torah er from the Balatanya, who was born five years after the Witzel Baditschuk. So the Witzel was born 1740. Batanya was born Tov Kuf 1745. And he passed away three years after the Witzel Baditschuk. So the Balatanya says in Torah Ur, Parshas Vayechi, the Maimer Chachlili Einayim Yayin, Olavain Shinayim Echalav, which we've been learning this week in the morning. We'll continue learning it tomorrow morning. You can tune in 7.30 a.m. to theyeshiva.net, Be'ezir Hashem. And he discusses that there's different layers of love. There's Avas Oilam, there's Ava Rabba, there's Ava Betanugim, different layers of love. But the first basic level of love is that I am in love with God. And what does it mean to be in love with God? We think it's a very far-fetched thing, but as he explains there and explains in other places, that really... Love God because He constitutes your life. Meaning, if you really love yourself, if you really love your life, you already love God because what is life? Life is the energy of life, the reality of life. What do you love? You say, I love my life. What, what, what exactly do you love? I love my tie. I love my watch. I love my coffee. <laughs> I like my coffee. I love, I love my body. I love my nose. You say, I love my life. What is that life? That life is divine. The divine energy that pulsates through every single person's life. It doesn't only pulsate through life, it is the pulsating life, the vibrancy, the animation, the vitality, the soulfulness of every single creature, every single living organism, every single human being is divine energy. That is your life. So to love God is really a way of saying to love the true life, to to love your truest essence, to love your reality, because the reality of reality is divine energy. This is deep, but that's the point. So the Rebbe says, what's love? What's my ultimate love? When my love is aligned, when it's davuk, when it's it mirrors, it reflects, and it's completely connected to the divine, to the divine energy. And all real love stems from that. Love to your spouse, love to your child, love to yourself, ultimately love to other people, love to family, love to community, love of humanity, love of the Jewish people. The pastor continues, Ani Hashem. Ani Hashem. I could love you for external reasons and I could love me for external reasons. And that's a very superficial love. But the real love is love that's eternal, it's absolute, it doesn't change every day because it's the love of the divine in me and the divine in you and the divine in the world. And that love exists everywhere because the divine exists everywhere. Then you have the quality of Tiferes. This is the third Midah. Tiferes literally means beauty. Aesthetics, harmony, glory. Hashem says beautiful words in Yeshaya, the Navi Yeshaya chapter 49, Yisrael Shabacha Aspar. Yisrael, you are the person in whom I boast. I'm glorified through you. I am glorified through you. Why am I glorified through you? 
because you are a replica of the divine. When somebody sees you, they see an ambassador of divine love, of divine beauty, of divine harmony. Yisrael ha'shebecha aspar. In you I boast, in you I brag. You are my beauty, you, you glorify me. That's the, the Midas HaTeferes, a person's beauty becomes a beauty that reflects the divine beauty. V'chein b'shar hamidos. And the same is true with all other attributes and all other characteristics of a human being. V'zehu oilam ha'emes. Interesting words. This is what it means to live in the world of truth. <laughs> what is he saying? Usually we say is Ganeiden. After a person passes away, after 120, you go to the Ma'emes, you go to the world of truth. But in the Hasidic writings, that distinction is much more subtle. It's not so, you know, there's before you die and after you die. I could be living in this world in Ganeiden. I could be living in this world in Eilam Amos. Eilam Amos is a state of consciousness. It's called in the world of truth. It's just after a person passes away, there's no fooling oneself because the veils are gone. So things are not eclipsed. Things are not distorted. Reality is very clear. But that reality doesn't begin after death. That reality exists right now. I could live in a place, in an environment of purgatory and I could live in a place of truth, Eilam Amos. What's the opposite of Eilam Amos? Gehenim, purgatory. What's the word for Gehenim in Tanakh? Sha'oil. Sha'el, Sha'el Tachtas, the abyss, Sha'el. The word Sha'el comes from the word Sha'ol. Sha'ol means borrowed. What does borrowed mean? When I live a borrowed life, I'm living in purgatory, I'm living in the abyss. Because I'm not living my life, I'm living a borrowed life. I borrow my life from you. I'm busy mimicking you and copying you and responding to you. So I'm living in a place of purgatory. I'm living in a place of... Of, of torture, I'm living in a place of anxiety, of stress. The world, Olam HaEmes, is living in a space of truth, means living in a space of full alignment, full alignment with your truest and deepest self. What does it mean to be fully aligned with your truest and deepest self? It means to be aligned with the ultimate reality, and that is the divine reality, so that my Midah has become a reflection of that, and this is the work of a person. The Tanya discusses at length how throughout our life we battle between two different states of consciousness, an animal state of consciousness, our reptilian brain, which basically is instinctive and is trying to survive and just find instant gratification, and our prefrontal cortex, our transcendent, our transcendence, our transcendent soul, which is our divine soul, and we operate between those two levels of consciousness. In which space do I live? Where do I live? Do I become an Adam who is a reflection of the world of truth, or do I become a person who lives in a world of superficiality and often in a world of falsehood and emptiness? V'im Now come very powerful words from the Holy Badechever. V'im If you understand what I just said, and the reason he says this is because these writings are so brief, are so concise, the custom of most Hasidic masters of the early generations and later generations as well was that even they barely wrote. But even when they did write, it was so cryptic, it was so brief, it was so concise that really you had to have so much background to understand it. And maybe a lot of the, a lot of the people who were reading it mostly they felt it. Even if they didn't understand it, they, they, they felt it. They, they had a, they were in an environment where these words spoke to them. But that's why he says, if you'll understand what I said, because it really needs a lot of elaboration. You'll understand the statement of our sages in the Talmud, Megillah Daf Yudches. The Gemara says in Megillah, How do we know that Hashem called Yaakov Kale, a God? 
Pasuk says in Vayishlach, Vayikreloi Kel Eloi Ke Yisrael. Rashi brings it as one of the interpretations, Shakadosh Baruch Hu Yaakov Kel. Hashem calls Yaakov Kel, a god. Now that's very, very strange. Judaism is based on the fact that there's one God and a human being is no God. We all are connected to God. We're all created by God. We, we all have a direct relationship with God. There's no intermediaries. We daven directly. We speak directly to God. But the Gemara says Hashem called Yaakov a God. Next. Then there's a Gemara, Baba Basra 75. Just as Hashem builds worlds, Tzadikim also build worlds. Really? We create worlds like God. In the future, when Mashiach comes, Tzadikim will be called by the name of Hashem. You could call the Tzadik HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And the sages say, The angels in the future will declare before the Tzadikim, Kadosh, 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 like we say about Hashem, Kadosh, Kadosh, God is holy, holy, holy. They're gonna say, the angels are going to say this to the Tzadikim. And Rabbi Tzadikov says all of these statements of our sages are deeply enigmatic. What does that mean? Similar statements, you have another, he, he mentions here a few, but you have quite a few throughout the literature of Gemara, Bavli and Yerushalmi and Medrash and Zohar, all around this theme, which if it's misunderstood, it could really be misconstrued as, as ideas that are very alien to Judaism. There's no need to elaborate here, but everybody understands. These seems like, these, these can be, this can be perceived as dangerous. And yet, as he says, this is, this is the meat and potato of Judaism. This is not some sentiment of some individual. How do you explain this? This is an, uh, an exceptional medrash rab in Parshas Vayechi. I think Tzadik Zion, that zip code. Yaakov Avinu on his deathbed, he gathers his children. And again, he uses an expression, an extraordinary expression. Just like to look inside, always geshmaker. Yaakov Avinu on his deathbed, he summons his children to bless them. So what does he say to them? This is Perik Memtes Pasig Beis, Genesis 49, verse 2. He kaftsu v'shimu b'nei Yaakov v'shimu el Yisrael avichem. Gather and listen, children of Yaakov. Hearken, listen to Yisrael, your father. Now we see a lot of redundancy. First it says he calls his children. He says, gather together and I will tell you what's going to happen to you at the end of days. And then he says, he kaftsu, gather, v'shimu b'nei Yaakov. Listen, children of Yaakov. V'shimu and listen, el Yisrael avichem. How many times is he telling them to listen? It sounds like a teacher who's trying to get the attention of his kids. Said, listen, 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 listen. It's going to be a good story. How do we explain this? So the Medrash says, it's an incredible Medrash. Yeah, I said Sadik Zayin, Sadik Ches. Okay, I told you that zip code. Medrash Abba Parshas Vayechi, Parshat Sadik Ches, Posik Gimel. He kaftsu v'shimu b'nei Yaakov, gather b'nei Yaakov and listen. V'shimu el Yisrael avichem. You have to say it differently. V'shimu el Yisrael avichem. Listen, because your father Yisrael is el. He's divine. El hu Yisrael avichem. You know who Hashem is? Yisrael, your father. That's what the Gemara says in Megillah, that Hashem called Yaakov Kael. Just like Hashem creates worlds, your Father creates worlds. Just like Hashem divides the worlds and allocates different parts of the world, your Father does the same thing. Listen, because Yisrael Avichem is Kael. What do all these things mean? 
I'm just adding to the Baditra resources. You have a Yerushalmi, Talmud Yerushalmi, Mesechta Bikurim. Vashem Behechal Kotshay. Vashem Behechal Kotshay. Another incredible Yerushalmi. To the Blazer Bebe Knishta de Kesarin. Speaks about one of the sages of Belezer when he's in the yeshiva in Caesarea in Kesarin. This is what the Pasuk means in Chavakag Vashem Behechal Kotshay. Hashem is in his holy chamber. The Zohar says, it says, three times a year you should go up to see God. Says the Zoyar, man pnei adin Hashem. Who is the face of God you want to go see? Da Reb Shimon This is Reb Shimon Again, all these things, if they're misunderstood, one can easily misconstrue them. Says the Reb Badicha, if you understood what I said in the beginning of this piece, then you'll understand what all this means. He doesn't explain. I think what he's saying, the way I understand it, based on many other Hasidic texts of the Baditchever and of his colleagues, the great masters of the Hasidic tradition, is the true person, the ultimate person, is the person who loses their entire ego and separateness and therefore they become a conduit for Hashem's infinity. And that's the Olam Ha'emes. That's what ultimate vacus means. Ultimate vacus means that the I becomes completely one with the source of reality so that there's no separateness anymore. Because the truth is that Einoid Movada. The truth is, as we discussed many times, that there is oneness. Hashem Echad doesn't only mean there is one God, but that God is oneness. To be in a relationship with God means you're in a relationship with oneness. There's a oneness that pervades all reality. There's a oneness that pervades all of you. Even though there's so much going on in me, there's so many thoughts and conflicts and polarities, it's true. But there's a deeper level of oneness. That's the state of Hashem. Einoid Movado. There's nothing outside of Him. When I can let go of all my wounds and my scars and my expectations of what my life has to look like, and my expectations of what things are supposed to be like and not supposed to be like, and get rid of all my inner shame and self-loathing and inner hate and insecurity and fear and dread, and holding on to the past and holding on to the future and transcending my depression and my anxiety and my stress, and I could become a conduit for divine love, so then the I ceases to be separate. The Baal Shem Tov once said, Moshe Rabbeinu says, I stand between you and God to speak and share with you the word of God. So the Baal Shem Tov said, What really stands between you and God is that sense of separateness, the fact that I have to carry my ego, my self-consciousness, the burden of existing as something separate is what separates me from my own divine infinity. But if all the doors of perception were cleansed, and if all the doors of toxicity were extricated, then everything would appear as is infinite, an infinite aspect of divine light. So when Hashem calls Yaakov Kale, it's not because we believe, God forbid, in polytheism. Judaism is monotheistic, there is oneness. It means that the real ultimate tzaddik is the person 
who has the courage and the resilience and the inner serenity and the fortitude to let go of self-consciousness and allow their self to become a conduit for their true self, which is true dvekas. This is what it means to live in dvekas. To live in dvekas means to live in complete alignment. Now this is very, very deep work. <laughs> this is not I snap my fingers and I'm there. Dvekas is an ongoing it's ongoing work every single morning when I wake up to say today I want to live in a space of dvekus and it's minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day, week by week, month by month. But that's the tzaddik. So therefore the Gemara says that Yaakov is called Kale and the tzaddik becomes one with Hashem. So he builds worlds. We are co-partners with God and in the ultimate dvekus you're not separate at all. The you and God become one. There's an expression of the Mittler Rebbe, the son of the Balatanya, the, the, on the ultimate truth of existence, the Yesh Hanivra, Vert Ein Zach the Yesh Hamiti. The Yesh, the, 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 the being of existence, of the, of the existing, of the, the being of every existing reality becomes completely one with the true source of existence, with the true Yesh, with the true somethingness. So therefore, he can call Yaakov Kel. Therefore, the Gemara says, "Who is Pneyad?" The Zohar says, "Who's Pneyad in Hashem?" Darib Shemem Ben Yechai. That's why the Yerushalmi and Bikurim could say, "Hashem is a Heichel Kachaya." Darib Yitzchak Barablaza, but but they knishted the Kesarin. That's why the Gemara could say in Megillah that the Malachim are going to say before the Tzaddikim Kaddish, or the Gemara could say in Baba Basra. I mean Baba Basra, Ayin Hey, that they're going to be called by the name of Hashem. In other words, that the ultimate Tzaddik is not somebody who does nice things only. Of course, he does nice things. The ultimate tzaddik is the one who lives in full alignment so that his or her entire being and existence is nothing but a conduit for the divine energy. There's an expression in Medrash about Moshe Rabbeinu, Shechina medaberes shal Moshe. The Shechina speaks through the throat of Moshe Rabbeinu. I mean, the Shechina speaks. Moshe is like, Rabbi Yudah Levi says, Ani kinar l'shirayich. I am a harp for your melodies. Like a harp. The harp or the other musical instrument, the piano becomes the instrument through which the music flows, the music plays to the point that you don't even, what if you could become an instrument where you don't see separateness anymore? The entire instrument is a conduit for the music. So the instrument becomes completely one with the music. It's not separate. That's the idea of Dveikus. He says, this is what it means to live in a world of MS, to live in a world of truth. And this is, of course, the ultimate self-fulfillment because I reach that place in me where I am fully aligned with my core and therefore all my heartstrings are playing and the resonance of the divine music flows through it. Now, this doesn't mean the person is living a perfect life and everything is wonderful. These were people who struggled and they experienced heartache and they experienced very distress. Levitzik Abaditchev did not have an easy life. He had a difficult life. But their approach to everything in life was as a divine ambassador in this world, not as a separate being who was detached. This is complete oneness. Now listen to his words. He's going to say something incredible here. In my mind, it's incredible. When a person is davuk, is connected in all of his midas to the Creator, azu enoi tachas He's not under Hashem. Adirab, who davuk ba'ashem. He's completely one with Hashem. He's not under God. But if he does not align himself with all of his midas to the divine, then he's under Hashem. 
which means, <laughs> very, very powerful words. Tachas Elikim means I'm under God. What does it mean I'm under God? God is above me and I am under him. God is the boss, whether you like it or not. God is the boss of the world. So we're all under God. But he says, but that's not the true meaning of life. The true meaning of life is that you shouldn't be under God. You are divine. You are a part of the divine. What does it say in the Svarim? That a soul of a Jew is a chelik eleikamimal. The Balatanya has the word mamish in Tanya chapter 2. Chelik eleikamimal, mamish. It's real. <laughs> mamish means mamish. It's real. It's, you, you can touch it. You can feel it. I'm not exaggerating. So he says, you're not tachas eleikim. You're not under your father. You're not under your mother, you're a part, you're a continuum. He says, you're Davuk Basha. Davuk means, it says in Parshish Bereshis, where's the word Davuk first? The Davak Be'ishtoi. You cleave to your spouse. You become one. Rashi says, because the child that's born, God willing, from a, from a, from a couple, from a father and a mother, that child is the father and is the mother. There's a complete enmeshment, complete oneness and synthesis and integration that's created. You're not under your wife. Vidavak bishtay means, doesn't mean you're under your, you're under your wife. Vidavak means you become one. There's dvekas. So he says, hasachas alakim means, I look at God, okay, you're the boss, you're up there, and I'm down here. I'm this little guy trying to figure out, and I'm basically a nebuchadnezz. Completely dependent on you, I have nothing, I am just under you, and I'm really a very, it's a very uh, victimized, and somewhat, it can be also a depressing and melancholy state of existence. There was a, there was a philosopher who considered himself an atheist, and he once said, he once said these words, and are very striking. He said, I think it was, I think it was Nietzsche, Friedrich Nietzsche, he said, if there was a God, I would want to be him. If there was a God, I want to be God. Why does God have all the power? Who gave him all the power? Yeah, imagine you're working in a company and there's one guy who makes all the decisions. All the decisions are his. Who are you? Who nominated you? I want to have the power. You decide everything in this world. You decide my fate, everybody else's fate. So what's the next step? The next step is I don't want to live with so much pressure. Sometimes I hear the, the debates of some of the atheists with the Christian theologians. And, and, and one of the big things of the atheists, they start describing the God of the Bible, right? And, and the key, the, 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 the key term that always comes out is, this is tyranny. Why do you want to live in tyranny? You live in the world of the Bible, you're living under tyranny. It, it, it feels like North Korea. And there were people, there were very precious people, friends and students who have shared this with me. They feel like they're in North Korea. God is watching you, everything is scrutinized, everything is monitored, you say an extra word, you're going to burn, you do something wrong, everything is accounted for, you're going to be paid back, there's going to be retribution, there's nothing that doesn't go unnoticed. Everything is monitored. And remember, you think Google knows everything? (laughs) Google knows nothing. God knows everything. And that means a lot, because Google knows everything. Today you can't doubt anymore when it says in Pirkei Yavis, God sees, there's always an eye that sees and an ear that hears. People say, come on, who knows what's doing in my bedroom? But if Google knows, certainly God knows. If the little G knows, then the big G knows. If a Russian Jewish boy, Sergey Brin, comes and creates a company, Google, that's worth billions and billions and billions of dollars and knows everything about everybody, <laughs> for good or for bad, Right? 
Certainly the creator of the world knows everything that's happening. For some people, that's too much pressure. Leave me alone. Leave me alone. Says the Baditshiva, you got it wrong. Your perception is tachas. You're not tachas, you're dovuk. Don't put God in heaven, and you're the little slave down here. And why does God have the power? I want the power. You're missing the point. God, God is, is, is a word that we use. It's a limited term. God is reality. You are reality. You're part of the divine reality. It's not two separate things. Not God sits in heaven and monitors you. Hashem is reality. And you are reality. You are an aspect of reality. You are the divine light in this world. Now it's hard for us to wrap our brains around this because we're not used to thinking this way. This is counterintuitive for many of us. We are used to a much more, um, we're, we're used to thinking of things in much more fragmented ways, in much more dichotomized ways, in ways of victimhood, more gullous thinking. The Rebbeinu Tzadik is introducing us here to the, one of the basic teachings of the Baal Shem Tev, of Einoid Mulvande. You are really the divine. It's not a joke. When Hashem calls Yaakov Kale, it means if you tune into the Yaakov in you, if I could strip away all the layers, what am I? Um, I am the divine light in this world. That's what the Gemara says, Shluchoy Shal Adam Kamoisa. You're Hashem Shliach. You're a messenger, you're an ambassador of God in this world. You are Him. You're, you represent Hashem. It's not just you do things that Hashem likes. It's much deeper than that. It's that in the ultimate sense, there is complete, complete vacus, complete oneness. I am basically God's representative in this world. I am Him. I am an aspect of His infinity. Not because my ego is big, because my ego doesn't exist. Because the real eye is a conduit for the divine eye. So the Bhadrachiva says, it's not tachas alikim. You're one with alikim. You are an aspect of alikim. You are the light of alikim in this world. Ooh, come back to Yosef. Come back to Yosef. The brothers are afraid that Yosef is going to take revenge. You know what Yosef says? Don't be afraid. Ki hatachas alikim ani. Bhadrachiva says, translate those words literally. You think I'm under God? I'm not under God. That's not how I see myself. It's never how I saw myself. I never saw myself that way. Remember what I told you. The day we met and I revealed my identity to you and you thought I'm going to take revenge. What did I tell you? I told you, you did not sell me. Three times he uses the word shlichus. Three times in three verses. I'm a shliach. I'm not tachas alikim. I am the light of alikim in this world. I am the extension. I am the expression, the manifestation of alikim in this world. That's who I am. The real person is infinite. You're afraid of revenge. You're afraid that I'm going to harm you? I don't live in that space. I live in the space of the divine. Take a look. This is now how the Unkelos got from the words of Yosef to translate those words the way the Unkelos translates them, which, frankly, seems very inaccurate. The Targum Unkelos sometimes uses... I don't know if the word is poetic license, but Targum Unculus uses context to sometimes translate a word not precisely. Usually the Unculus follows the literal translation. But sometimes if Unculus feels it could be misconstrued, so Unculus will give you 
a different, a slightly different interpretation to give context, especially when it comes to issues of the divine anthropomorphisms, etc. But here, Yosef says, am I under God? And the Tangamunculus takes out the question mark, puts an exclamation point, so to speak, and says, I am fearful of God. Where, where does he say? Where does he say this? Says the So everyone translates, he said, Am I in the place of God? That's not what he said. Tachas alekim ani is, am I under God? I'm not tachas, I'm dovuk. That's what the Targum Unkulus means. I am an expression of Yiras Hashem. You don't have to be afraid of me. I'm not I'm completely dovok in Hashem. My midas hayira, my attribute of fear of awe is like the year of Hashem. It's a reflection of the year of Hashem. It's completely one with Hashem. It's completely directed towards Hashem. Just like my other midas. All my midas are not tachas. They are a reflection of the divine. And what the Badichiver is saying is something even deeper. The Targum doesn't say, Hashem. I am afraid of God. That wouldn't be in the words of Yosef. Dachalad Hashem is not, I'm afraid of God. Dachalad Hashem, my year is the year of Hashem. Not just I am afraid of God like Hasachas Alekim. No, my Yira reflects the attribute of Yira of Hashem. Because all the attributes that we have come from Hashem's attributes Chesed, Gvura, Tiferes, Netzach, Haid, Malchus. The love of God and the awe of God and the splendor of God and the victory of God and the submission of God and the bonding of God and the royalty of God and the wisdom of God. Our midas in the essence are reflections of Hashem's midas. So, my yira is a reflection of Hashem. It's divine. And therefore, in that place of Yerush Shemaim, that's what Yerush Shemaim really means. Yerush doesn't just mean, I'm afraid of God that He's going to do something bad to me. I'm afraid of God means I'm always in the presence of infinity. I'm in awe of infinity. Because I'm in the presence of infinity. I'm an ambassador of infinity. That's my type of Yerush Shemaim. Such a person will not take revenge of his brothers. Such a person is capable of forgiveness, always. Because one of our deep, why can't we forgive? What's the challenge of forgiveness? Now here I have to speak, say something about forgiveness. Forgiveness doesn't mean that if somebody continues to harm innocent people, we just say, I forgive you. Then forgiveness is not an attribute or a virtue. Sometimes I am being an accomplice to the criminal. If somebody is abusing people, I say, oh, I forgive, I forgive. You're not helping anybody. In fact, you're becoming a partner, a silent partner with the criminal. Forgiveness means somebody who apologized, somebody who has remorse, somebody who expressed remorse, somebody who asks me for forgiveness. These brothers came and they, 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 they asked for forgiveness. They said, Yaakov said you should forgive. They said we want to be slaves. Now there is forgiveness when somebody doesn't ask for forgiveness, but if they're continuing to do the crime, it's a whole different situation. I just want to qualify that because people shouldn't take this wrongly. So what Yosef is telling his brothers is also something very deep. The reason I have such a hard time to forgive is because you really hurt me in my core. You destroyed me. 
But when you realize that your core is invincible and your core is divine and you're the God's ambassador in this world, then your power is so much different. Because it's not even your power, it's God's power. Nobody can destroy God. Nobody can obliterate Hashem. Nobody can extinguish Hashem's light. Nobody can extinguish your light, your joy, your potency, your power, your confidence, your inner core. You are invincible. You are full of promise and possibility and optimism and happiness and confidence and wholeness. Now, I know you feel otherwise about yourself, especially if you experience pain during your childhood. So your neural pathways or my neural pathways may be trained to tell me that I am a victim and when you say something to me, I get very, very triggered and my trauma comes back or my wounds rise to the surface and I sink into my melancholy and depression for a day or for a week or for a month until I get out of it. And I have to have compassion for that and you have to have compassion for that. But never define that as your core and as your essence. Sometimes my neural pathways are just trained to go into that direction immediately without challenging it because that's the only reality of the self I know. A self that's filled with guilt and shame and fear and dread and insecurity and self-loathing and self-obliteration and self-destruction. But if I could tell myself, my midas are really a reflection of infinity. I could contain my scars. I could contain my wounds. I could contain my trauma. They don't contain me. I contain them. They don't define me. I define them so that I could notice what is happening to me. When you say this, I'm triggered so deeply. If I could notice it, create space for it, have compassion for it, but then realize that there is an I that is observing it and therefore that I is not defined by it. And that I is always aligned with infinity and I can choose to direct with compassion my focus and my energy on that inner eye which is a reflection of the divine eye and that's where real forgiveness comes from because there's a place in me that always remained whole that you could never ever take away that's the divine place where I'm not tachasalikim I'm completely dovuk I'm completely connected to God this is how Yosef comforts his brothers. This is how the Baditchev explains his words when Yosef says, Hasachas alikim ani. You know, it's even deeper. It's not just Yosef could forgive because he's invincible. And Yosef could forgive because his compassion is so deep. It's also Yosef can forgive because, because God sent him into these situations. Right? That's what Rashi is saying. And this is where all the this is where all the interpretations come together. The Targum and Rashi and the Kedushas Levi are really coming together. Rashi says, you guys can't harm me. You tried to, but God uh, God did it. The, the, the Targum Unkula says, I'm a God-fearing person. The Kedushas Levi brings it together. And he says, when you realize that you're the divine in this world, so then everything that happens to you, Enoid Mulvadai, Hashem, put me into this situation. Even if somebody had bad intentions. But ultimately, God allowed this to happen to me. I'm His messenger. It happened to Him. I'm part of Hashem. God allowed Himself to go through this, through me, through my experience. Why? Not to destroy me. To be able to help me fulfill my mission. Because my mission is God's mission. 
So Hashem is always with me. So even if I went through so many different things in life, and I can blame you and you and you and you, and maybe you didn't have the best intentions. You really wanted to kill me. You really wanted to bury me. You tried to bury me, but you know what happened? You planted me. You planted me. And look what happened. So it's a whole different perspective. So therefore I can forgive, but for this I have to go into a much deeper place inside of me. I'm going to conclude with a story. It's a story about the person who wrote these words, Rebbe Yitzhak of Barditchev. And I have to tell you, it's one of those incredibly moving stories that if we internalize and we take seriously, I think can have a very powerful impact on us. Rebbe Yitzhak of Barditchev, unfortunately, as I mentioned, he was a rabbi in a few communities and he was expelled from each of them. The last rabbinate was in a city called Pinsk. And one of the leading figures of the community of Pinsk, a man named Reba Vigdor, was very, very opposed to the fledgling, to the young Hasidic movement and its Hasidic teachers. Rebbe was one of his targets and therefore he expelled him and his family until he came to Bardichev where he was accepted gracefully and, and given tremendous respect and honor, and where he lived during the later years of his life until his death in, in uh, 1809. In one of his communities where he lived, there was a wealthy, affluent Jew who despised him. Now you'll ask me, how can you hate Rebbe of Badichev? That's a good question. And I don't know the answer to that, but I guess if you're indoctrinated for many years and there is confirmation bias, and you have your own misery and bitterness, and you never bother to transcend your subjectivity, and uh, you remain stuck in the quagmire of your narrow orbit and narrow perceptions, you can develop hate even to the greatest of the great, even though you never, you don't even know them. This person hated Lebiotik of Badichev. And he always tried to undermine him and to prove that he is a charlatan. But how do you do it? People saw this as a man who, who was not just kind. He was a, he was a piece of holiness. You, you, you saw the Baditch of Davin, how he made a bracha. He was just, he, he, he was a piece of divine fire. He was, he was holy fire. Everybody loved him. Till today, till today, people loved the Baditchever. They loved mentioning him, telling stories of him, sharing his teachings. He's, he's like alive in the Jewish world today. The Baditchever, he's like, he's part of the vocabulary. And he always represents, he brings out the best feelings in people. Positivity. Always positivity. Always had something positive. He wasn't a naive person, by the way. He was, he was a very big lamdan. He was an analytical mind. He was a big scholar. He was a very, very deep person. People think he was just a naive, warm, you know, grandmother-like figure who just said sweet things and gave candies to everybody. The Baditchever was a great Talmud. He was a great Talmud. He was a great scholar. He was a great mind. But he was a holy mind. He was a deep mind. In any case, so this person who was quite sly and shrewd, decided he has a trick. It was before Yom Kippur. He comes to his home and he says, Rebbe, I want to ask forgiveness for everything I have done to you. Do you forgive me? He says, of course. Of course I forgive you. He says, Rebbe, for this we have to say L'chaim. 
and he brought alcohol, known as Exonainsica, 96% of alcohol. And he gives the Baditchever a cup, he fills up a cup, he says, Lechayim, and the Baditchever drinks, he makes believe as he's drinking, I guess he pours it out in his, uh, in his kapota, in his bekesha, in his long frock, in his coat. And he says, Rabbi, I think for such reconciliation, we need a second Lechayim. And he fills up a second cup, 96% alcohol. And the Baditchever again says, Lechayim, and drinks it, and he gets rid of his alcohol. He says, Rebbe, three times is a chazaka. Three times means it's eternal. Let's do it again. And Rebbe Baditchever drinks a third time. This man is so ecstatic because he knows what is likely to happen. In a few minutes, the rabbi of the city will be out cold, and he will probably be sleeping for 12 hours, and he will miss Kol Nidre. The holiest night of the year, the holiest prayer, the rabbi will be discovered as an alcoholic, as a drunkard somewhere lying under the couch or under a chair, drunk on the night of Yom Kippur. What better proof does he need to produce to show that this man is no Jewish rabbi? This man is an alcoholic. This man, Kabayachal, is a drunkard. This man needs to be driven out of the city at once. Oh, was he excited. He went home rubbing his hands with glee. 96% of alcohol, three cups. <laughs> Even in Ukraine, it has an effect. How astounded and disappointment this affluent man was when he came to Shul, Yom Kippur at night with his kittel and his talus, and he comes into the synagogue for Kalnidra, and who's there? In his serene state, of Dveikas, of oneness with the Rebbeinu Shalaylam. Okay. He was quite disappointed because he thought he really scored here. He had a home run and he would finally expel him from the city. After Mayriv, the night of Yom Kippur, there's a custom in many Jewish communities that many Jews stay in Shul and they say the whole Tehillim. And Rabbi Yitzhak Obaditchev had that custom, and he used to be the chazan. He would stand by the shtender, and he would go through the whole tehillim. It's done in many communities. I grew up in a shul. They did it after Mayriv. They would stay in shul and say the whole tehillim. Hour and a half, two hours, whatever it is. The Baditchev starts saying tehillim. And he says tehillim as usual with passion and gusto and zest. He comes to the end of Kapitel Mem Aleph. The end of Kapitel Memal, the end of chapter 41 of Psalms, it reads as follows. Literally it means, God, how do I know that you love me? You will not allow my enemies to triumph over me. The Baditchevist comes to this verse and he says it three times with tremendous focus and concentration. This is how I know God, King David says, this is how I know that you love me, that you desire me, you will not allow my enemies to triumph over me. Yaria is from the word triumph, victory, be victorious over me, defeat me. You will not allow my enemies to defeat me and destroy me. That's how I know you love me. Three times he says this. How do I know, God, that you love me? You will not allow my enemies to destroy me. But then, shockingly, he begins translating this verse into Yiddish. And he gives an original translation. You see, Uriah is usually translated triumph. But Uriah also comes from the word Ra, which means 
evil, negative, harming, laharat, lahara. Yosef says, Atam chashavtam alai lira. You wanted to do something bad for me. He translates in Yiddish. I'll say it in Yiddish and translate. Bezois yodaiti ki chafatz tabi, says the Badichever. Vivesich heleke bashefer. Adohast merlib ki loyoria oivi aloy. As du vest kemon. Nishbrengin kein schlechts. Zu meiner feint. Zu lib mir. Hashem, how do I know that you love me? You will never ever cause any harm to my enemies because of me. You will never allow me to be the cause of somebody else's pain or harm. God, how do I know that you love me? If you will not hurt my enemies because of what they have done to me. That's how I know that you love me. If you will not allow my enemies to experience harm because of what they did to me, then I know that you love me. He said this three times in Yiddish. On my behalf, on my cause. He says this three times. And this Jew, this wealthy affluent Jew, was the only person who knew the real story. Standing in his place, and his heart melts. Even his heart melts. His heart. A person who was capable of making Rebbe Yitzchak drunk the day before Yom Kippur, the hours before Yom Kippur, in order to display his disgrace. Even his heart melted. That what is the Baditshever praying for? God, if you love me, don't hurt anybody on my behalf. Those who want to kill me, those who want to destroy me, those enemies... This guy wants to get me out of the city. If you love me, don't hurt him because of me. He couldn't take it anymore. He ran over to the shtender. He prostrated himself. And he said, Rebbe, Zaymer Moichel, Rebbe, forgive me. And he became one of the great chassidim. Is this something I can live up to? We're very often tachas like him. I'm under God. But it's something to think about. It's something to imagine. It's something to aspire to. Maybe not 100%, 50%, maybe not 50%, 100%. Each of us in our own lives to think about those people that we don't speak to. Those conflicts that endure in our families, in our companies, in our workplaces, in our communities in our cities, immediate family, extended family, former friends, former classmates, former employers, former employees. And then rethink about it, but not from a perspective of tachas alikim, from a perspective of dveikas belikim. Not from a perspective that you're under, under the rug, but from a perspective that you're dovuk, you're one. Then everything changes. Not because you weren't hurt, not because people are always righteous, not because people have not made mistakes, not because some people are not malicious. Some people could be malicious, and some people could be clueless, maybe more than malicious, clueless. And even maliciousness is a form, a deep form of cluelessness if you go deeper. But it comes from that inner place 
of perceiving yourself in a completely new fashion. Either I am under God or I'm part of Hashem. I'm a ray of divinity, a fragment of godliness, the manifestation of Hashem's light in this world. I'm one with the divine. I am Hashem in this world. That's who I really, really am. Can you really see yourself in that light? When I see myself under God, it's so hard to forgive. You hurt me. You damaged me. You insulted me. You caused me heartache, suffering, distress. You scarred me. You wounded me. You traumatized me. Even if you apologize, how can I forgive? How can I let go of all the pain? And that's a good question. That's a good question. And it's interesting, the Torah never tells somebody you have to forgive. It encourages you to forgive. But it doesn't make it a demand because it has to be genuine. I can't tell somebody, oh, just forgive, forget about it. That's not right. And that's not nice. But when I could perceive myself, and this is inner work, as completely aligned with God, I could forgive because then I discover my invincibility. Nobody can destroy God. Nobody can obliterate my core. Nobody can crush my soul. Nobody can destroy my wholesomeness. Nobody can extinguish my fire. And you know, when I'm also aligned with the divine, I discover my capacity for infinite love, for infinite compassion and understanding. Can you have compassion and understanding? He says, my midas are dovuk with Hashem, and therefore my compassion is large. My understanding is very deep. Even if my conscious limited brain says, don't forgive, there's an inner space in me that allows me to transcend my limits and forgive. And you know, when I'm under God, I also can't ask for forgiveness. It's too vulnerable. It's too hard for me to say, I'm sorry. I made a terrible mistake. Somebody told me yesterday that their father once did something that hurt them very badly. And I asked this person, did you forgive your father? And he says, you know what the hardest thing for me was? My father could never get himself to say, I'm sorry. He really did something. He knew that it hurt me. I told him, we spoke about it. He could not get himself to say, I'm sorry. Some of us just cannot say, I can't say I'm sorry to my wife. I can't say I'm sorry to my husband. I can't say I'm sorry to my father. I can't say I'm sorry to my mother. I can't say I'm sorry to my daughter, to my son, to my brother, to my sister, to a friend. I can't say I'm sorry. I made a terrible mistake and I want to apologize. I can't do it. I will find every excuse in the world not to apologize. I will blame you. I will say, let's get it over with. I already apologized. I will find every rationale in the world why not to apologize. But this is all when you're tachas alikim. When you realize that you're one with the divine, then you can transcend the fear of what is it going to sound like. Then I have no fear of being vulnerable. Then I have no fear of stripping away my external layers and allowing my beer self to come out because I'm not afraid that I'm going to be reduced into nothingness if I'm vulnerable. When I have a fake ego, I'm afraid of being vulnerable because what am I going to look like? What am I going to sound like? But if I can really appreciate my divinity, I can be very vulnerable. I can just be honest. I can be authentic. You know why? Because when I strip away all the layers, what's going to come out? My core self and my core self is one. And therefore, I don't have to live in a world of toxicity and blockages. So, everybody tuned in today, everybody who's going to watch later, I say to you, 
And I bless you and I bless myself and I bless all of us that every moment, every day, we should be able to live in the space of not tachas aleikim, but as Yosef said, I am actually a reflection, an ambassador of the divine in this world. That's who I am. That's who I really, really am. And therefore, I am an ambassador of love, light, hope, forgiveness, healing, authenticity, and redemption. Thank you. Have a wonderful week. Tomorrow morning, Wednesday morning, we will have our class, 7.30 a.m. We will continue the Balatanya's Mimer and Parshas Vayechi, as well as Thursday morning, 7.30 a.m. Sunday morning, 9.30, we will continue part two of Basi Legani, discussing the three streams of Kabbalah in understanding our relationship with the divine essence. Three streams of well, it's going to be Sunday morning, 9.30. Let's take some questions. Question number one. There must have been a point in creating the ego, though. Yes, of course there's a point in creating the ego, because this is not about not having an ego. This is about aligning your ego with God's being. It's not about obliterating the ego. You remember what I said from the Mittler Rebbe? The Yesh HaNivra must become one with the Yesh HaMiti, my ego with the divine essence. Wouldn't the brothers be jealous or hate Yosef even more after he said this? No. Yosef was saying, each of us is God's light in this world. There's no room for jealousy here. You know, jealousy... This Vasemis discusses this in Parshas uh, Vayigash. Jealousy exists. There's a famous piece from uh, Reb Nachman of Breslov, Lekotei Maharan, and Reb Nassim of Breslov. Jealousy always comes from when uh, I think you're taking away something from me, or you think I'm taking away something from from you. So we're jealous of each other. But when I realize, and you realize, that my light can't eclipse your light, and your light can't eclipse my light. On the contrary, when your light shines brightly, it helps my light shine brightly. And when my light shines brightly, it helps your light shine brightly. When I go into that state of consciousness, there's no jealousy. Because we're all one. I am Hashem, and we're all one. So why am I jealous of you? Jealousy comes from narrowness. Envy is ignorance. All envy is ignorance. Listen to what I'm telling you. So when Yosef tells this to them, I'm not tachas, we're all part of divine light. I'm not going to take revenge of you. You were in a narrow space. You tried to kill me. But God had very different plans. And I see myself as a messenger of God. What about people who live their lives in fear of the opinion of their fellow religious Jews or the community they live in? Listen, we all have a certain amount of this, you know. We all have a certain amount of anxiety and a certain amount, I can't say all. Many of us have a certain amount of anxiety and a certain amount of social conformity and a certain amount of fear. And this is all from the perception of the self in a much narrower space. You're right. If someone is making you feel badly, does it mean that they're shining a spotlight on their own flaws and not yours? Yeah, I think that's usually the case. If someone sees someone being bullied, are they obligated to call the abuser out on what they're doing? Or should they just distance themselves if they know the person won't listen and won't stop? Also, if the person sees verbal and emotional abuse, 
will they be held accountable for remaining silent? The reason they want to remain silent is because they fear that the abuser will target them. I think that it's our responsibility to speak up, and you do it in a wise way, that he won't target you, or she won't target you. But just to say I'm going to distance myself when I see a crime happening, that itself is a crime. The Torah says, Do not stand idle by the blood of your fellow human being. And therefore, it's always our responsibility to speak up when there is injustice, when somebody is suffering, when an abuser is getting away with murder. Imagine somebody is holding a gun and going from school to school, God forbid, targeting innocent people. Is there an obligation to speak up or should we remain silent? Well, emotional abuse or sexual abuse, verbal abuse, could sometimes kill as well. And as a victim once told me, and it's not a bullet that just goes into him and kills him once. The death happens every day. Of course we are responsible. Obviously you do it with seichel, you do it with wisdom. You have to sometimes consult people who are real experts and professionals, and they have empathy, they care. They don't just say, you know, let's push it under the rug. It's funny that you say some people can't say, I'm sorry. In my situation, when I say I'm sorry, I feel very liberated. Okay, you're lucky. This was a very inspiring class. Thank you very, very much. How do we implement this in our lives? Okay, this is, this is, this is my work and this is your work. You have homework. By the way, Yosef used the same words that Yaakov said to Rachel when Rachel asked him for a child. Yaakov also said, am I in the place of God? Is there a, is there a teaching about this? Absolutely. If you go to the yeshiva.net, you can go to the parsha of Vayetze. And over there you'll see a class, it was actually a woman's class we gave, about, uh, we still did it, this is before Corona, I think last year, last winter, two winters ago, about what Yaakov told his wife Rachel when she asked for children. The Pesach says in Tehillim, in Hallel, Hashem li loyira ma yasali adam. God is with me, I'm not afraid, what will a person do to me? Is this basically what you're saying? Yeah. This is the bottom line of what Yosef is saying. Hashem Hashem So it's not just, don't be afraid, guys, because, you know, God will, if God wants to kill you, he'll kill you. I can't kill you. It's also Yosef explaining his own attitude. And his own attitude was, I never saw you as being responsible for my life. You're not responsible for my life. God is responsible for my life. In fact, me and God are one. God is responsible for his life, and that means me. Because I'm an aspect of Hashem, Einoid Movada. And therefore, I'm always His Shliach. And I never end up somewhere because somebody wanted to hurt me. I was sent there by Hashem. Hashem took a part of Himself, and sent Him there in order to be able to achieve this, this type of greatness. Next question. There was a famous Holocaust survivor who forgave the Germans. Others were incensed at her, and they said they would never forgive. Yosef did forgive, but he wasn't killed. Being thrown into the pit and sold was reversible, and it ended up as good. The six million were not lucky. Esther Bas Yitzchak from Talmanasha was not so lucky. There are reversible horrific acts and irreversible horrific acts. Do we forgive the Germans? Do we forgive Esther's murderer of court? Well, first of all, the IDF, I believe, apprehended him. Or at least they apprehended the person who's being accused of it. There will probably be a thorough investigation, or there was already. They did do tremendous work, and they apprehended 
this this terrorist, this murderer. But there's also another key difference, and that is Yosef could forgive for what happened to him. I can't forgive you for what you did to somebody else. How could I forgive the Germans for murdering six million other people? I could forgive you for what you did to me. I can't forgive you what you did to somebody else. The Mishnah says in Yuma that even God can't forgive you for harming somebody else. You have to apologize to them. God could forgive you for what you did to him, not for what you did to another person. So therefore, I have to ask you for forgiveness. So we cannot forgive people who have hurt other people without their consent. It's actually a chutzpah, it's audacious. You may have read the book Sunflower by Simon Wiesenthal. You know the story? It's a worthwhile, it's a worthwhile story to pursue. Sunflower by Simon Wiesenthal. An incredible story about a Nazi who asked him for forgiveness. That's number one. Number two, forgiveness, if it's going to produce more evil, is not a virtue. It's evil. If you're forgiving somebody who's a unrepentant terrorist, and by forgiving them you empower them and embolden them to continue their heinous acts, then forgiveness is an act of evil. It's not forgiveness. It's not virtue. It's adding hatred to the world. Somebody's running around, wants to kill Jews, wants to kill innocent people. So then the greatest thing you can do for them and for humanity is to stop them by all means, including if you have to kill them so that they, you avoid killing of innocent people. That's what the Gemara says, somebody comes to kill you, you kill them first. Norman Schwarzkopf was once asked if we, sh- if we should forgive terrorists. He said, it's not our job, it's God's job. Our job is to arrange the meeting. You speak about God violating the commandment not to make a graven image when he created the human being. The patriarchs kept the Torah before it was given. Yet you explained a few weeks ago that Yaakov's promise to marry Rachel overrode his stringency of keeping the Torah before it was given. God told the angels, let us make man. That's a promise corresponding to Yaakov's promise to marry Rachel. Maybe God was bound to keep the Torah he eventually gave, even before he gave it to us. Maybe. But even if he was bound, would that be a stringency, and it can't override the promise that he has to make man? Just like Yaakov couldn't have his stringency override his promise. So God didn't violate the future commandment against making an image, just like Yaakov didn't violate the future prohibition against marrying two sisters because man was made before that prohibition was given. I have had an ongoing argument with my family whether I am God or not. Thank you for vindicating me. Well, I I don't mean to uh, spoil the party, but the moment this becomes... uh, a statement of hubris, then uh, you didn't understand the class. (laughs) This is the ultimate humility, not the ultimate hubris. When it says, I am God, doesn't mean I am God. It means I don't exist, and I am a conduit for God. My existence is a channel for divine energy. A little different. Someone used to be very close to me in the past, is not willing to talk to me anymore. This person used to love me, now despises me. It hurts me a lot because I care for this person. She makes me responsible for all the problems in her life 
and I'm not able to accept this. It's very hard for me to live with the fact that a person who used to be so close to me despises me so strongly. It hurts me to see this person suffer because of her own resentment, but I feel helpless. I simply cannot be indifferent to it. What can I do? What are my options to deal with this situation? I appreciate your advice, as always. How do I deal with people who can't forgive? It's very hard for me to give advice on such a story without knowing any details. So I I don't know what type of advice to give. You have to know much more. However, I'm just going to say some generic ideas very, very briefly that can maybe help plant seeds. The first thing to do is figure out why where this resentment came from. If she used to love you, why doesn't she want to speak to you? Why is she so upset at you? Maybe she feels that you hurt her very badly. Is it possible then for you to make an appointment and apologize? Just apologize. Just make an appointment, meet this person, maybe through Zoom or FaceTime or a face-to-face meeting. I don't mean just a text. Really, face-to-face and take responsibility for your part and simply say, I'm sorry. Is that a possibility? Maybe she's not ready to speak to you. Maybe you can both go to speak to a third person, an arbitrator, uh, a rabbi, a professional, a therapist. Maybe you can send somebody and ask. Maybe you could send a card, right, with with nice wishes and, 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 and reach out to the person. Try to create some type of connection that you can have an open conversation ultimately, maybe with the help of a third party to figure out what's the problem. You don't identify here what's going on. Now, there may be something else happening. Maybe there's something actively going on in your life where you are causing her damage or you're doing something that may be very abusive. I don't know, but we have to find out. You don't discuss this. If there's something going on, maybe you're causing her distress and pain so she feels like it's very hard for her to speak to you. I don't know. Or maybe it's something of the past and she's just not ready to let go. But did you ever apologize? Did you ever make amends? Did you reach out? Well, I mean, all of this has to be addressed before any advice can be given. If you apologized and you made amends and the person is just not ready to see you or hear from you, they're not ready. What I would do is just don't close your heart. I would encourage you every few weeks or every few months to send a letter, to send a gift, to reach out, to say something nice and kind, to apologize. But ultimately, they have to be ready. Again, without knowing all the variables I can't give any authentic advice. The Torah does not command us to forgive. But it's true that it does say that the offender has to beg for forgiveness three times and then he fulfilled his his obligation. Yeah, it does say that. You fulfilled your obligation and, and, and you do what you want. But remember... After three times, it says you also send friends. The Rambam discusses this in the laws of repentance, discussed in Shulchan Aruch. You can see all the details there or ask a rabbi. There's a system. I ask a few times. I send friends. I send people who this person has a contact with to try to intercede on my behalf. If nothing helps, nothing helps. But I have to be able to try. It's always, these are things you do not want to let go of. These are very, very precious opportunities. You do not want to leave this world with the regret that I didn't have the courage to say I'm sorry. I have seen over and over again how people, because of petty fights over money 
or over honor or over perceived money or honor. They split up families. It's not the way to live. You're not tachas alekim. You're bigger than it. You're more powerful than it. There shouldn't be people you don't speak to. There shouldn't be people you just harbor resentment and grudges. I may have a disagreement with you. Maybe we need boundaries. Maybe we have to part ways. That's fine. Not everybody is your best friend and not everybody is the person that becomes your confidant. Okay. But to hold on to this negative energy where you can't speak to somebody, we have to cross the street when you see them, you can't answer their telephone call, that's living in a very, very small place, very petty place. There is one exception, and that is if there's an active abuser in your life or somebody who's causing you tremendous distress, then you may have to cut them out at the moment simply to protect yourself and your loved ones. There, so there are, there are exceptions. That's not petty. That is sometimes survival. But it's good to get an objective opinion of people, of a person who is not biased and who cares for you and sees the bigger picture. Next question. My understanding is that a person who offends another person must ask forgiveness. Yes. And the Torah says that the person who was offended should do whatever they can to forgive them. And the Arizal instituted that before we go to sleep at night, we say a special prayer. And I say it at night, it's a beautiful prayer. It's a beautiful prayer. Master of the world, I forgive any person who provoked me or angered me or sinned against me against my body, against my money, against my honor, through words or through actions, in this reincarnation or in a previous reincarnation, I forgive them and nobody should be punished because of me. So what Rebbe Yitzhak of Baditchev said, the night of Yom Kippur, the Arizal instituted as a prayer that every that people, if they want, can say at night, this is not an obligation, because this is talking about even people who did not ask me for forgiveness. But as the Rambam says in Hilchis Deus, I think chapter 6, the Rambam in the Laws of Ethics, chapter 6, that Midas Chasidis, the pious way to live is to find the resources to forgive people even if they don't ask you. If they ask you to forgive, then the Torah really strongly encourages them. If they don't ask you, your mom is not obligated. But it's certainly a much uh, more powerful and also happier way of living. They say that holding grudges is like inhaling poison and hoping that your enemy is going to die from your poison, or putting yourself on fire and hoping that your enemy will be burnt. You know, when I carry grudges, it affects me as much as it affects you. I think if I carry a grudge on you, you'll be harmed. Maybe, but I'm also harmed. So it's always good to try to let go. So the Arizal has this prayer that even if a person didn't ask forgiveness on our own, we forgive people at night. But you have to be ready for this, and nobody can force somebody. And if there's a lot of trauma and there's a lot of abuse, then you may need help and you may need time and you may need space. And that's fine. Don't force these things. You have to have compassion on the process. Beautiful questions. Beautiful questions. Um, I wish everybody a wonderful day and a beautiful week. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.